Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On today's podcast, we will hear from Lighthouse faculty reading from their own work during our annual LitFest faculty reading series. Dusk settles over the apartment complex. 
No one else is in the world, just me and Chris G. The gold foil on the mouth of my lowen brow scratches my lips. My tongue burns with cold gold fizz. The sky tilts and shakes. The clouds grab and release the blue, the dimming gorgeous blue, and I am floating like a balloon. I am 13 years old, and the moon is coming up over the cemetery. I'm just going to read one more. This is a new one. I'm working on a a series of poems. Uh, And it's top secret, so I can't tell you what it's about. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Uh, It's called Blood Story. I remember pursuing you on my bike in vain. The streets shimmered gray and were empty runways. We were just kids. Your mom had just died. You did a wheelie and smashed against a curb. You lost the queen of hearts and the clothespin off the front fork, trump card that made Huffy into Harley. You skinned hard down your elbow. You said your wrist went electric. No one came out. The houses were window-eyed and closed. There was no there, maybe never was. I ran my thumb along your chain. It came back black and sooty. I tasted it, warm and blue. My tongue swelled. Still no one. Where is my mother, you asked. Maybe you never had one, I said. Maybe I never had one either. Maybe we were orphan twins found by cops in a dumpster downtown. Or by a park ranger in a hawk's nest down by the quarry. Or swaddled in leaves in a den of wolves. But as we lay on your front yard, grease on my shirt, I swear I looked over and saw her saw your mother watching through the gauzy curtain, but then she sparkles and fades. Thanks, Mike. Would you guys tell me if I look silly in a hat? You look so myself because I can't believe the type of people who I almost want to say are willing to teach for us, but I definitely have low self-esteem. So I want to say that we're lucky enough to have teaching with us. And Mark Irwin is one of them. I'm I'm a huge fan of his poetry. Um, A few other people are too. He studied at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Maybe you've heard of it. He has six collections of poetry, although this might be an old bio. Is it seven now? That's right. Six. Six is enough. Six is enough to be impressed by. The new one is Tall If, which I keep thinking is about me if my mother hadn't smoked and taken amphetamines when she was pregnant. He might be our furthest flung instructor for um, for Lit Fest. 
and he recently won the Mellon Teaching Award for his work with the grad students there. So I'm very happy and pleased that Mark Irwin is here. Thank you. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I've gotten a bad call from this Icelandic weather we've been having. <laughs> um, but I want to take a minute just to <clears throat> especially thank Mike and Andrea for this uh, wonderful Lighthouse workshop. I remember it when it was in its em embryonic stage. <laughs> and, uh, but since that time, there's been these wonderful venues. I remember the Toby Wolf, hopefully some of you. I went to see that, but it just gets better and better, and I think everyone in the community is really thankful uh, to you for how much it's grown and how serious. Well, I guess that's the wrong one. Probably serious. But thank you all for coming. And uh, I'll start with a fairly humorous poem. Jake and I were talking about the South. We both <clears throat> lived in the South, Jake in Alabama. I lived in. Uh, uh, Tennessee and Kentucky uh, for about a combination of eight years. But uh, when I was uh, uh, nine years old, my father uh, worked for, uh, actually owned part of a small newspaper called the Kingsport Times News. And uh, he thought it would be a great idea to dump me out one Saturday morning with a bun two bundles of 50 papers and I was supposed to sell them. Uh, in front of a bank, and it was just a humiliating experience for me, I'll never forget. Um, and this is the way I dealt with it. <clears throat> the poem is called Lucky Boy. I am nine years old. My father drops me off in front of First Trust Bank in Kingsport, Tennessee, with two bundles of 50 newspapers, 9 a.m., Saturday morning. Everyone's going in. He says... Hold them up to your chest like this and shout, extra, extra. A nine-year-old boy would rather talk about the sex life of his parents before cannibals than shout, extra, extra, in front of strangers. There are extras, all right. I sell one, heave 99 into a dumpster, trade my change money for five rolls of nickels, keep trading them, till I find three semi-rare buffalo head nickels, walk back across the street, sell them in a coin shop for 10 bucks, then walk back to the bank, high noon, where I'm picked up. How'd it go, he asks. Made 10 bucks, I say. You did well, he says, smiling. Now go across the street, get yourself something to eat with a profit. It will never taste better. I ordered a cheeseburger with extra fries and a Coke. I felt as exalted as I did ashamed. The place was called Lucky Boy. And as I left, there he was, huge on the roof, freckled, smiling, holding a tray of something up to the sun, his legs crossed, running into the blue. <laughs> True Southern poem. <laughs> Manners Big Boy actually started in the South. That's what the reference was. Um, I'm actually going to read some new poems. I have a new book, uh, which I'm just uh, starting to send out, and it's called Church Engine. <laughs> and uh, the first 
poem uh, I'm going to read is a very serious poem. <clears throat> it's called Rider, R-I-D-E-R. It's a sonnet. As I carried my mother from the hospital bed across the room toward the chair by the window, she played with my gold watch as if it were a toy, flipping the strap up and down, then singing, Giddy up, giddy up. But as I looked at her, she did not smile, so I nodded my head, snorted, then put a pencil in my mouth as bit and cantered about the room till I was out of breath, puffing. And she patted me saying, good boy, good boy. So I pawed the carpet, slobbering a little like her as she waved and I nodded my mane until this was how we said goodbye one spring while the sun shrank to a white-hot BB among a thousand others receded, receding in the jeweled black sky as the rivers galloped away with her breath through the dark green land. <clears throat> On Sunday, <clears throat> sometimes is the title of this poem. Another sonnet. On Sunday, sometimes, I'll start in late afternoon and follow the words of a new sentence until evening finds their appropriate dusk. Then squinting, wrapped with the moment, I'll open the photo album and descend into its cellar where people are walking toward me, out from the white chancel of each picture, behind which a mountain looms, all of its snow melting. They are sloshing through twilight now, their hands dripping, pointing toward my mouth, walking on the road of my sentence that now smells of fresh tar in the summer heat. And for a moment their cheeks flush as their frayed threads of their clothes unravel into one truth. And from the building and shadowing cumuli, lightning pins the quick of a greening world with the babble of every word, their fingers like mice thirsty, scurrying across my face. And I'll read one last uh, poem here. And uh, it's actually called Tall If. I'll read the title poem to this uh, collection. <clears throat> If I can see it. <laughs> Tall F. It had something to do with the flowers, their brief tints and ballast of color. And with the pollen spilled like gold sugar onto the lawn. It had something to do with each of our lives when we stood between evening and forever and someone spoke and the words made a kind of grass all over the page. We waited there, picnicking in that brief summer. Yesterday I planted the seeds, and today their fire leafs, climbs. I will water the fire till that fire greens between red sky and blue earth. Fool, this is the way time works. One minute the salt becomes sugar, or the flesh you held becomes distant as cloud, 
or slow and perfect as stone. Privileged moments when the light comes out of the air and stands unused for a while. And so we walked out of our minds into the sky, ignorant of each gesture calling us back, the glittering armor on the ground. Thank you very much. He put that down with, I'm sure, 
a fair amount of brutality. All my life, he was reliving that war, and the rest of us lived it with him, my mother, my sisters, and I. For me, it meant learning to shoot before I learned to read, and this was one of the things I hated about the sugar business. From the age of 15, having to patrol the edges of the property or sit baking for hours guarding the cane cutters. Most of my father's employees were former slaves, and I didn't like that either. Supposedly, slavery was being phased out, but nothing seemed to change. I guess things still haven't changed so much, but it looked different. That's what I'm getting at. Picture the fields broken up by forests that ran between properties. There was also a large forest at one end of my father's land, simply because no one had decided to clear it. I can't begin to express what those places full of tangled plants meant to me. They were a world within a world. Networks of moist tunnels. The air was like green jelly. I used to ramble compulsively, a habit that caused great trouble with my father. In retrospect, I can see how frantic he was, how afraid that he, of all people, had somehow begotten a lazy and reclusive air. He had a ready hand with the whip. You'd think that would have cured me, or at least made me rebellious. But to step under that green and yellow canopy was not to feel defiant. It was to slide away from thought altogether. It was when I suddenly sank into mud up to my knees and didn't know if I was going to stop sinking. It was to feel my heart in my throat. Occasionally, a path would open onto an enormous space, and I would stand there for a quarter of an hour at a time, proving my father right about his lazy air just breathing, palm fronds vaulting 40 feet overhead, echoing with the shrieks of birds, moss hanging in 12-foot strands. You could say it was God's own church, and I suppose that's what I went there for, to be terrified. But I had been raised to assess the value of objects according to their potential to advance the interests of my family, and what I told myself was that the forest mattered because it was full of mahogany and cedar. I told myself that timber was my best hope because the sugar markets were unstable. And that part was true. That hasn't changed at all. I told myself that when I had authority over the land, I would year by year replace the sugar with trees. By the time the last of the sugar was gone, the first of the trees would be grown. I would sell wood. I wanted to build a factory, too, and sell furniture, cheap furniture for export to America, and beautiful pieces for connoisseurs. I told myself it was a rational plan, far more rational than the tedious glare of the fields. But of course, I wasn't considering that human economic arrangements are never strictly rational. One day, your mother and her fellow musicians emerged from that forest. This was during the harvest of 1894. They'd taken the wrong path in there and had ended up on my father's property instead of the road to Tonsis. I was on horseback, sitting guard and stagnating in the usual way in the middle of the field, listening to the sugar cane. Just cooking in the sun and listening to that eternal clicking of the cane in the wind, and the men grunting, and the interlocking rhythms of their machete strokes. You could say I was in something of a trance. I almost wasn't surprised to look up and see a disheveled knot of hair rise over the cane. Then came an announcement. I still can't see. Oh, that voice, like chimes. Rosanna was standing on the back of a mule, you understand. Even so, she wasn't tall enough. I heard her threaten to climb onto her father's shoulders, and from the way he begged her not to, I sensed she was capable of trying it. They were six men, six mules, and one young woman riding behind her father. When I rounded the corner to meet them, she dropped into her seat. All I could see was a pair of men's shoes sticking out of bunchy skirts and her hands on his shoulders. Two of the men were walking beside their mules, which were loaded with blankets and bags. 
Riding in the rear was a dark, wrinkled little man who hid one hand behind his back as soon as he saw me and slipped something into a side sack. That was Julio Rio. Even then, he was a very old man. They were dismayed to learn how far they were from the concerts. By the time they arrived, it would be too late to organize a show. That meant no supper and no breakfast, and a good likelihood they would sleep under the stars. I was impressed. It seemed magical, the notion that a group of people would sally forth each day with no idea where dinner would come from, only the certainty that they would have to charm it out of people with their music. They had already begun to charm me, you see. Still, I think they were surprised when I mentioned some empty barracks on the property, and terribly grateful when I invited them to give a concert. Your mother's father, your grandfather, was almost tragic in his effusions. He crossed his hands on his collarbone and called me a beautiful soul, a prince, his savior. This was, to be addressed this way by an older man, it was embarrassing, but heady, especially because I knew your mother was behind him watching me. He introduced the members of the group, and when he got to her, I said something, I don't know, something about beauty-serving music. She gave me just a quick smile back. So I knew, because she was so different from the bright-voiced girl who'd been teasing her father a moment before, I knew that I made her nervous. The charge between us was tangible enough to give her father a start. He still thought of her as a child, I guess. I won't presume to say it was love. On my side, it wasn't even physical desire that came later. The only thing I can compare it to was the sensation I sometimes got of being thrilled through the middle when I turned over a log in the forest and something alien scurried out. The hairier the spider, the more violently colored the lizard, the more certain I felt of being alive. I'm afraid that has an unchivalrous ring. You understand, I'm not saying your mother was any way like a spider or a lizard, just that she was the first human being to give me that kind of a jolt. They called themselves the Enchanted Orchestra, and they stayed in our barracks for several weeks. Word spread for miles, and in the end, they didn't go to Matanzas. The city came to them, came above all to hear the conversation between your mother's voice and Julio's flute. Every night they performed somewhere in the area. The topic was always love. I guess Rosanna was 16 or so, but she had a presence beyond her years, sometimes dry and arched, sometimes aching with regret, the kind of regret that should have been outside her experience. The flute was insistent, pleading, heartbroken, mischievous, triumphant, and underneath ran currents of rhythm from the guitars and maracas. Everyone was alive then. Everyone who was alive then remembers those performances. Some big names in today's music were children in that audience. I don't believe Rosanna understood how much she was at the center of this ferment. For most of her life, she had been an only child among adults, an apprentice, and she was still very young. There was a certain knowingness. Among all, she, after all, she had lived on the road, but it was as if she didn't know what she knew, in every sense of that phrase. Which was fine with me, her not knowing, especially not knowing the extent of her own charisma, seemed like my best chance. I had a hunch I was the first man to pay serious attention to her, and that I would be far from the last when they moved on. And so it became my fixed intention to prevent them from leaving, or at least to keep her from going with the others. Certain things made me hope that she never looked me in the eye, that when I dropped by the barracks for a visit, she talked energetically to anyone but me. I was young myself, barely 20, but old enough to be emboldened by this rather than offended. So I began to show up while they were rehearsing, putting myself in her line of vision. I'm afraid I was pleased with myself when I saw her lose her concentration once so badly that Julio snapped at her. I suppose I did feel some twinges, especially about severing her from the other musicians. What would that do to her? I wasn't sure. 
but I told myself that it would be better for her to have regular meals and a stable home, as if anyone in Cuba could guarantee stability just then. I told myself that if I didn't do it, someone else would. I egged myself on, as uncertain men do, by telling themselves that other men would never be so uncertain. And after all, maybe she read my thoughts, because when I asked her father for permission to marry her, he said yes, after bursting into tears. But she said no. Then Julio walked in and said that if she wasn't going to marry me, it was time for them to pack their mules and go, because he was tired of trying to work with her when she was in this state. I said, to my eternal shame, if you go, you'll have to leave behind that piece of wood you've been carving, because it's stolen wood. He pulled it from under a blanket. Actually, he pulled it out in three pieces because he'd already cut it into the sections of the flute. He stood before me and fit them together. They slid into place, just melted together and fused back into one. Well, with the love with which he must have worked his carving knife, it made me feel very shabby. He didn't say a word, and he handed me the flute with a look of such contempt. I apologized and begged him to keep it. Julio can be a poisonous old nut. He turned his back on me, started packing his bags, and left me there standing let me stand there holding the flute. I remember being amazed that he had lived to be so old that someone had knifed him in the back by now. After a moment, I set the flute down on a pile of bedding and said something about not bothering him anymore. Your grandfather said, wait, please, Senor Carpolo, we're very honored. Please don't go, I beg you. And then, are you sure, Rosanna? I turned around in time to see the expression on her face, unhappy, uncertain, stubborn. He said, you won't find a better man. And she said, you want me to marry him. It was an accusation. And he said, yes, but only because, and she interrupted, so you can be without me. I was beginning to have an idea, a young man's wild idea, but I kept quiet for a bit. Barona was a very emotional man. He wept and cajoled, holding her hand and stroking her forearm. Rosanna, please, please, marry this man. You should marry this man. I order you to marry this man. She gave him a look of such skepticism. Well, it was a characteristic look, and I'm sure you've seen it. He put his head he put his head in his hands. He wasn't like my father, who was used to compelling, who in fact had compelled my sisters to marry. Verona could charm a meal out of your mouth, but he couldn't make his daughters do anything, and we all knew it. I said, Rosanna, it's because you don't want to be separated from your father? That's when the negotiations began. She was attached to him, but it was more than that. I think she feared becoming just another of the little families he had scattered all over the country. That prospect stung at me. That and the idea that the enchanted orchestra could do without her. She said, Julio and the others would have to stay too. Julio went on packing. So I said, Senor Oyo, you're, forgive me, an old man. Sooner or later, you'll want to settle down. Why not stay here next to the forest and make money from this beautiful carving that you have such a talent for? I had revised my dreams, you see. Instead of a furniture factory, I was going to build an end instrument factory. I told Julio we would split the profits. The enchanted orchestra would have a permanent stage. This plantation would become an oasis of trees and music. He asked if my father would agree to this idea. Well, that made me nervous, because my father was practical, traditional, and suspicious of African music to boot. I said it didn't matter, because someday I would own this plantation. Rosanna said, so what you're saying is, you'll build this place for Julio when your father dies? That might not happen for a long time. But in the meantime, you can stay here, I said. You can all stay and keep playing your beautiful music. I marry you now? Yes. No, she said. You, bear, you build the factory first. It was as if she told me to go out and slay a dragon first. In fact, they were all skeptical of my promises, even Verona, and they were right to be. 
Two days later, I found the barracks empty. My father had gotten wind of the courtship and had driven them off, according to witnesses, at the point of his rifle. It was the ultimate humiliation. For me, I mean, not for them. On the floor, I found a broken guitar string. Also, I discovered the physical sensation of hope dissolving. I felt poorer than before the enchanted orchestra had come, and I took that dusty room to heart as an emblem of the life I had been abandoned to. How could I ever look Rosanna in the eye again? I walked out with my head hanging, which is, I suppose is why I found one more thing face down in the dirt outside the door. It occurs to me, Jane, that you might be interested in this, a photograph.
calls its own attention to itself and is, is rewarding. And these three poems I'm going to read are elegies. Two of them are double elegies, and one is uh, single wide. Um, so yeah, that's all I'll say. <laughs> uh, this first poem, if you know the Choctaw language, uh, will be useful. <laughs> anyone, anyone want to? <laughs> is it worth swaggle the Choctaw? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I think actually that's all gone from <laughs> Um, all right, and this is, a, this is a double elegy. It's for two young men, Charles Eddie Moore and Henry Hezekiah D., who were kidnapped and they were murdered in May of 1964. And their bodies were only discovered because um, later that summer, Cheney Goodman and Schwerner, three civil rights workers, went missing in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And um, as one of their wives would say, it was only because two of them were white that they went looking for them. And then they happened to find the bodies of these other two uh, teenagers. So the title is Homochito, and the poem translates it, so that if you know the Choctaw, you're ahead of the game here. Homochito, which is the name of a national forest, so you'll be, you'll be good from here on out. Homochito. In what language did it mean the river, this tongue of rust that gives the forest a name? The trees can't tell you, and the forest means you are alone and a hundred years from Natchez when the light begins to fold into the leaves. Not even the birds can tell you. Alone on the ruined wood as Audubon saw them, they can't even name themselves. So they disappear, rising into the dusk, their marks lost in early stars. The painter could bring them down, a brush of shot, then meteors of Latin, Picoides Borealis, Campophilus Principalis, he could raise to that canvas, leaving only empty mouths in the world below. Swallows, starlings tongue the cavities, but cannot make the sound, and the flickers offer only a syllable, key, 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 key. Invisible as the bird everyone is looking for, ivory bill, lightning jag, as if that call might end some other way as if in one of a billion trees those wings might cough from scarred wood and write themselves back into history. The trees are going now, lost in the dark. Among them the one you'll never find, one side washboard rough, the other smooth as standing water, where two men were tied one May night to be beaten from this language. A notebook, an informant's file might tell the rest. How he spotted them hitching out of Meadville. How he waved the men fake badge flashing. How he drove them off the map. Headlamps on the clay gash roads. And then the opened pith. Might record the call, the kiwu, which means, Klansman, I want you. Which means you are alone. And soon the water will take you and keep everything but the names nothing here remembers. Now the trees give each other the wind or the weight of some passing. And every step stirs the forest's meal into clouds of wings. Moths that tumble toward the river where they can semaphore like mayflies or dragons on the lily's hoods. Or rise through the trees to eat the night from the brighter silk of day. When the star lights 
light descent, lens descends. The ground is fluttering. Slowly, it peels away in innumerable blades, each one a map of night seen through water or leaves, leaving a bolt hard and white as bone as if some bird had fallen where those wings could feather it in quiet. And around it, the shadow, a body leaves, the wake through which it falls. Now the light is fine as dust. The ground is cold, rust dark, and smooth as ash. Somewhere there is a name for this. Someone could write it down. this project involves going back to these places and seeing what can be seen and often there's nothing to be seen. Um, and sometimes that's the story, that there's nothing to be seen. And so this poem is also a double elegy. It is for two men who were murdered in the summer of 1967 in New Orleans, totally unrelated as far as anyone knows. Aaron Lee and Joseph Thomas. And this poem is called Shore. Here you are only epitaphs, only names on this list I carry and unfold when the light seems quiet enough. You are just this spill of a city, no ward, no neighborhood, as if that last place can't be touched, as if the line had slipped through some scar the water multiplied then forgot. That water's everywhere, reaching through the trees, in the steam of afternoon, the smell of everything, and that tremble in it, the afterward of that last reflection. Somewhere you are burned on an inch of film, your names, your faces, maybe your last addresses, places where I could ask again. So the reels unwind in a library's dim. Old bulbs, dirty lights, scumming the emulsions, oil, that chemical sprawl, that rainbow the dead always leave behind. Aaron Lee, you are a forgotten mile in East New Orleans, an alleyway of scrapyards and boxcars and derelict homes, trailer parks now laced as curtains where flood has grazed, a place even maps might forget. The water stays between the lilies and the cattails' blades, between the gravel knuckles and the tar. The water stays keeping that place you last touched the earth, where you rose up biblical in air before gravity remembered you and called you home again. And now it keeps the rest, the car that launched you, that drove away, the friend thrown too into the reeds, and even the house just west of here, where you never arrive, abandoned, as a name no one answers to. And you, Joseph Thomas, you are an empty lot, a field behind a chain-link fence where the St. Bernard Project used to be, where one night you walked out into the yard and slumped into the grass as if sleep suddenly found you, and you collapsed under its weight and laid down where the dew would cover you. Hours later, someone would pull back that blanket and find you cold, your last breath gelled in your philtrum, inarticulate ink, the bullet spilled. 
hours later, someone would turn you over in the yard, which is not here anymore, in this field between Hamburg and Gibson that has forgotten everything but a single tree. Each doorway, each window, each lot line and walkway, even that place where the sniper stood, which could be right where I'm standing now. There are no answers. There is no one to ask. An ice cream truck sings its way down Gentilly's abandoned mile, and three bulldozers ply St. Bernard's vacant ground. But no one stops. And downtown, where the smell of the river is even stronger, a librarian files the reels again, and the steel drawers click shut. I have little more to write beside your names on this list of martyrs, of people to be pulled back through the glass of history, this list where you stand for everyone who had a killing but not a killer, for everyone who simply disappeared, who walked out as if into air, taken in a fog's unknown hands, leaving nothing but a name, a date, and that fear constant as water that anyone could be next. I fold the page again and peel my shoes from the mud. Everything smells as it always did, of mud, of river and lake and live oak. Everything's reaching up like that one great hand in the middle of the rubble lots, like the fingers of the sago in a ditch on the edge of town, the way it always does, trying to hold something that might rise and be gone. Wherever you touch the earth, it can grab at your heels, and you can look back at the wells your walking's made, and watch as the water touches, then fills them in. And uh, this last poem is, is set in Montgomery, and it tells you its story, and it's dedicated to Dave Smith, who several years ago told me, son, I don't think you know what you're doing. <laughs> or something like that. And it's called... It's called Dave Smith, Bowie? Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> or it could be another Dave Smith. Okay, It could be my mechanic Dave Smith. But let's, say the, let's say the poet for the purposes of this story. Uh, and the poem is called Darkly. The moss never falls. However gray it hangs like shirts left to weather and rag over the road and the dead end rail, and in all the branches from there to the shore, and then as far upriver as you can see. Here it's only open water, empty sky, two ends of road no one uses, landfill on one side, thicket on the other the story of a bridge in between. Below, the waters huddle, cold and silver. It won't show a thing, so I looked for that place in the air where they held a gun on Willie Edwards and told him he could jump. How, you'd ask me. Why is so simple, it won't tell a thing. How'd they get there, Edwards in their hands, along the road so many others took to church or to the movies or home along the same white lines. To condemn is easy, you said. To condemn is to turn away where no one will ever understand. So I go back downtown to Jefferson Street, 
to though their haven, the little kitchen's gone. I can cruise. I can walk and search each pane of glass for that wave of heat, the echo that will feel the, fill the night fifty years gone, where five men bent in a diner's greasy light as Montgomery darkened beyond the window, each bus offering its insult or imagined slight, and planned to kill a man they'd never seen. I can walk their streets, though no one walks here anymore, until I catch that curve in a window or a windshield that wrecks my face, so for a moment I can't mistake myself for the redneck at the end of a joke. Every map is open but a man, and you can turn away before you see how it's drawn, or arrive too late and miss that moment when he sees himself as his language does, when every other face becomes the glass but his own. Maybe the street lamps remember the light, jellied and thin as bacon fat, as the vowel in your mouth that just won't break, the door I can walk through, a room where I can sit beside them hardly out of place, then watch them rise and part the city's yellow crepe of light, and then a door I can open to follow through the warehouse streets to the city's fence with a memory only half my own. I know these nights. The sky is ash, and if you wait too long, your bones sing in your fingers, cold as galvanized wire. The rest of the way comes from somewhere else. There are many ways to get there, and then the one I can't understand. Already, maybe always being there. Maybe they were born into that sky. And they were always there, ready to force a choice so they wouldn't have to make one, waiting for someone else to write their names in air or water. They never arrived, so it didn't matter they grabbed the wrong man. Wouldn't have mattered if they'd found the one they were looking for. They'd still disappear like the bridge and be forgotten by the water. They'd still come, each one, to that morning at the end of everything when they'd look back on the healing water and say, my life hasn't meant a thing. Some things are beyond us. The moss never falls. The river won't say a thing. I lean, clouding its reflected night. And now I can't tell you how I got here or what I'd hoped to see. What face would rise if light swept from the channel or the opposite shore? The sky is empty and the river's bent like a question. Too close or too far away to read it. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. Is that something that's already titled, a project that's already titled, or do we have to wait? What is it? We have to wait. We have to wait. We have to wait. Follow our Twitter page. Because it will be released via tweet as soon as we figure out how to tweet. Or somebody does. Um, well, that was amazing. Thank you for that. And do you guys feel like you need, do you need to stretch or do you need a break? We have two more. Okay. I love a decisive no. Okay. Um, well, the next person up has done a lot for friendship. We... Um, begged her when we first started Lighthouse Writers Workshop 12 years ago, and we started needing more than just Mike and I to, to teach uh, the workshops, we begged um, this person to move out here from, I think it was 
Francisco. Was it San Francisco? Vermont. Now the surprise is up. The gate <laughs> via San Francisco. Via San Francisco. Uh, and, and we begged her to come out and teach a class, and she she did, which I think is amazing. And she's a great writer. She's been in, for, for the short story, she's been in some of the top places you want to be, Story Quarterly, Red Book, and she's, she's got stuff in South Dakota, Dakota Review, and 5280, various places. Um, and she's an incredible writer, a great teacher, and a great friend to Lighthouse and, and to us personally. Uh, Jenny Bacchiano, I tell. So I just have to say something about Andrea after all that, which is that um, she put such a wonderful spin on everything. Um, they did invite me out here 12 years ago, um, but I needed a place to go. And the way that Andrea... Um, yeah, she just makes you feel so wonderful. If you ever need an introduction, I mean, ask her. So, you know, I, she made me feel like, you know, oh, you should come here and teach. And then I later learned she just welcomes anyone and lighthouse welcomes everyone. They were starting Lighthouse, this amazing sort of writerly family. And I, I took her up on it, and I feel like um, I just sort of found my um, writing group and writing family that I've been in for 12 years. So, um, that's sort of the other spin of that story. Um, I'm going to read a, a few pages from a story in progress. And um, since some people here know me, I feel like I should say um, it's fiction, um, but, and you'll see that. But, um, but there's some elements that are I'm stealing from life. Um, one is that my narrator is um, oh, kind of a flustered new mom um, of an infant that just refuses to nap. And she's trying to write. And that's I have a one-year-old, and he's just the worst snapper in the world. And um, like hours before coming here tonight, I thought I cannot read this. I have to like redo it. I had to redo all these things in it. And um, but he wouldn't nap. <laughs> I won't tell this whole story. But I put him in the high chair with a bunch of applesauce, which was a disaster. But I, and I was scribbling notes, and then I really quickly typed him in and came here. So. <laughs> Anything that sounds drafty is his fault. <laughs> and it, it's the first couple scenes of Story in Progress. It's um, either going to be called The Secret Ingredient or The Wish or Inevitable. Um, the old woman followed them home from the grocery store. Gwen felt a slight thrill at realizing she was being pursued. She was headed home to an afternoon of hobbling on her knees after the baby, who wanted to walk all the time now but needed assistance, and here was something different. A stalker? Well, that was likely the fiction writer in her making leaps. Stalker was a strong word for the elderly German woman who'd taken to her son in the produce aisle. Oh, look at that, he has an avocado, she chirped in a pleasing accent, and Gwen had turned to see that Max had stretched from the grocery cart, lifted an avocado, and bitten right through the skin with his two teeth. <laughs> Alex did that. <laughs> he wouldn't relinquish it, so Gwen had let him gnaw on the two-dollar piece of fruit while she chatted with the woman about babies and miracle spot removers and such. <laughs> they talked until Max began to wriggle and squeal, and the avocado slipped from his hands to the floor, and Gwen sensed an imminent tantrum. Then she said she needed to get going, and the woman, Louise, she said her name was, dug through a pocket in a worn overcoat, came up with a pad and pencil stub, and wrote out her number for Gwen. 
In case you want that recipe I mentioned, she explained. She tickled the baby's avocado-smeared chin before stepping aside so Gwen could get on with her shopping. Gwen had enjoyed their conversation, but afterwards she felt overly aware of Luisa's presence in the store as she moved up and down the aisles, and she purposely kept her eyes on her list, focused now, determined to get what she needed and get Max home. While at the checkout counter, Gwen saw Louise near the door, rearranging some of the items in her bags, and she got the sense that the old woman was lingering. Maybe she craved another baby fix. She had 11 grandkids, she told Gwen, but none of them lived nearby. Gwen avoided Louise on the way out, using the door at the far end of the store for fear of another lengthy interaction. She couldn't risk running into nap time and having Max fall asleep in the car instead of in his crib at home. She needed to work on an ending. She was a freelance end writer. She wrote the last chapters for mediocre commercial novelists who got writer's block um, in their... I, this part I wrote today, sorry. <laughs> that writer, writer's block or lost their oomph in the final weeks before their manuscripts were due. It was a strange profession and one she couldn't talk about due to a menacing clause in her contracts, but it suited her well in that she could work from home. At least that was the case before Max was born. Now his naps allowed her only enough time to take a quick shower, make a cup of tea, and turn on her computer. That was usually how it went. He'd let out a piercing screech just as her fingers touched down on the keyboard. <laughs> Louise was gone by the time Gwen finished loading Max and the groceries into the car. Also, it had started to snow. Light flakes splitted around when Gwen scanned, the, while Gwen scanned the parking lot, feeling relieved and also a little guilty when she didn't see Louise. And then there she was again, pulling out of the parking lot behind Gwen in a battered Toyota, one of the boxy models you rarely saw on the road anymore. A coincidence, Gwen thought, until the Toyota took a right at the golf course, then a left into the suburban neighborhood in which Gwen lived, and then another left onto her cul-de-sac. Gwen pulled into her driveway, Louise parked by the mailbox. While Gwen busied herself getting Max out of his car seat, she tried to guess at what Louise might want. Now the situation felt awkward and inconvenient more than thrilling. For a moment, it seemed Louise wouldn't get out of her car, and Gwen thought she'd simply pretend she hadn't seen her. She'd head inside and come back for the groceries later. It was cold enough that they wouldn't spoil. Then the driver's door of the Toyota opened. The recipe, Louise shouted, rushing up the driveway toward them. I've remembered the ingredient I couldn't think of before. Gwen and Max circled the kitchen island, round and round. Gwen had on her husband's old knee pads, which she found in the garage not long after Max took to his feet. And so she thumped on the hardwood as she, w as she went. Max held tight to her index fingers and now and then paused in his bow-legged swagger to point and say, dat, 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 at Louise, <laughs> who sat at the table sipping the tea Gwen had fixed over an hour ago. In the grocery store, Louise had done most of the talking, a lonely old grandmother needing an ear. But now the roles had somehow reversed, and Gwen, who didn't usually open up for strangers, found herself going on and on about how hard it was to keep up with her job, copy editor, she told Louise, and look after the baby, especially since Max was such a horrible napper. He looked up at her when she said this and gave her a razz. And then there was her husband, who always worked late. Mentioning her husband made Gwen pause to wonder what he would say to the fact that she invited Louise into their home. She could hear how a conversation would go. Who did what? A total stranger? Not a total stranger. We talked in the produce aisle for like 20 minutes. <laughs> She's perfectly harmless. She's 70-something years old. She has 11 grandkids. 
how does that make her harmless? When we need to look after our son right now. It's your job to keep him safe. I am keeping him safe. It doesn't sound like it. I am. But you don't know how hard it is taking care of him for 12, 13, 14 hours a day. I know how hard it is, Louise said. I remember. Had Gwen spoken aloud? Maybe. You need help, Louise continued. A babysitter. Do you have a sitter? Yes, Gwen said. She comes a couple afternoons a week, but Max hasn't warmed to her yet. He screams and screams. The babysitter was a young, pretty neighborhood girl whom Gwen had hired so she could keep up with her work, and also so that maybe now and then, maybe one afternoon a week, she'd have time for her own writing. It was terrible and embarrassing to reach the point she was at was at in her career, churning out surprising but inevitable endings on the sly. And here she hadn't finished, let alone started, a publishable story of her own in years. Before Max was born, she'd spent too long pursuing a novel down a draft down a dead end, and since his birth, there'd been no time. Even when she managed to steal a few hours, she couldn't think of what to write about anymore. She was out of ideas. She'd sit at her desk, stare at a blank screen, and listen to Max's angry wails reverberate throughout the house. She essentially paid the babysitter so she could sit in her basement office and feel like a neglectful mother and a professional failure, <laughs> one hanging on the tail end of a decade-old accomplishment, a story published in The New Yorker. The New Yorker. She debuted in one of their fiction issues. They touted her as a young writer worth keeping an eye on, and yet she'd slipped from view and become, of all things, a ghostwriter. Max let go of her fingers and ventured on his own toward the cabinets. Gwen stood and stretched and started unloading loading the dishwasher. Max moved along the cabinet faces until he reached the dishwasher, too. He rattled the plastic silverware holders. Are you helping? Thank you, Gwen said. She handed him a spoon. To Louise, she said, I don't mean to complain. Sometimes I complain and then I fear something bad will happen to Max to make me pay for being ungrateful. I realize how lucky I am. I have friends my age who've had so much trouble conceiving, and Will and I decide to try for a baby, and just like that, here he is. Perfect. Well, except for the whole napping thing. But otherwise, <laughs> what more could I ask for? I have no right to ever wish for anything else. Nonsense, Louise said. You can wish for whatever you want. No harm can come from wishing. Gwen looked at the clock and saw it was already four. How had two hours passed? And then she looked out the window above the sink um, at the snow, which was coming down at an angle now in sleety flakes. The morning's weather hadn't predicted this, possible afternoon showers, the weatherman had said, but here was an ice storm with no sign of stopping. The sight of it made Gwen shiver. She looked back at Louise, who seemed perfectly at ease at the kitchen table and in her own age-spotted skin. Her long gray hair was gathered loosely at her neck in a faux tortoise shell barrette. She wore an oversized shaggy brown sweater that engulfed her solid frame and looked like something that one might wrap up in to go to sleep. Gwen had this thought about Louise's sweater and then immediately realized she was exhausted. It hit her, it hit her with a swoop, as if she'd opened a door and let months and months of sleeplessness in. She remembered she'd been up since five and Max was overdue for a nap. Oh, Louise said, pointing, maybe you don't want him to play with that. Gwen looked down to see that Max had traded his spoon for a knife and was about to put the pointy end in his mouth. Oh, shit, Gwen said, grabbing the knife away and causing Max to cry. What's wrong with me? Then she, too, erupted in tears. She picked Max up, and he looked at her wet face, startled. He stopped his own crying and furrowed his little baby brow. Silly mommy, Gwen said, wiping her face. Silly sleepy me. Louise appeared at their side. She shut the dishwasher, and then she reached for Max, who had reached out his arms to her. 
Gwen had never seen him do this with anyone who wasn't family. It was his level of comfort with Louise, first in the grocery store and again when she'd approached them in the driveway, that had caused Gwen to invite the old woman in for tea, despite the voice in her head that knew what her husband would say. Now Matt snuggled into Louise's fuzzy sweater, which was exactly what Gwen had felt and urged to do just minutes earlier. <laughs> oh, Matt, Louise said to Gwen, you need rest. Gwen considered the offer. Her husband was due home at six, but the weather might hold him up or he might end up having to stay late at the office, which would leave Gwen by herself to simultaneously fix dinner and deal with Max during his crankiest hours. Would it be insane to leave Max with Louise while she lay down? for just a short nap so she could revive herself? What could happen? She didn't bother to think through five possible outcomes as she did with all the endings she wrote because her mind landed on what was surely the most inevitable one. She'd take a short nap, then wake up in plenty of time to usher Louise out of the house before Will came home. Stop there. was a year old, I wasn't writing anything even close to that. <laughs> um, and by the way, Max was the name I chose That's for Alex. True. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So Max was going to be Alex's name, but then when she said it's not going to be Max, I said then it's going to be Alex. Well, it went through a few other, I went through a few other guesses, didn't I? But she had already decided. So you named your child. No, uh, she had already decided. I decided on the X at the end. The X is me, right? That's true. And Andrea. So, and your magnum opus is this child who's amazing and brilliant. So thank you for writing while you're doing that. Um, so last but not least, I often think we should play Stump David Rothman because... I mean, he can stand up here and he could probably name a poem and he could recite it as an auctioneer would. As I heard him do with, uh, upon reading Chapman's, on first reading Chapman's Homer the other day, a few weeks ago he did that, um, which is amazing to me. And he's a great poet, a great performer. He also plays piano, improvisational, or just classical and various other kinds of piano. He has a, you have a trio, right? Or a quartet. A trio. Um, and he's got this great collection out called the um, Elephant's Chiropractor, which you brought. You didn't bring. Did you bring another? You didn't bring anything. If you want anything of his, I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to get it off of Amazon. Uh, but what a great poet and a, a great person, David Rothman. extraordinary thing. I believe that uh, Lighthouse is maybe the best organization of its kind in the country. It's an extraordinary success story, and uh, it's great to be part of it. Uh, if you have a million dollars, give it to them. <laughs> Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. <laughs> 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 
gold standard out there. What's the matter, lady? I'm a fun guy. <laughs> oh. walks, uh, a guy walks into a bar with a, with a frog on his head. Bartender says to him, so when did that happen? The frog says, I don't know. Two days ago, it was just a wart on my ass. <laughs> a potato walks into a bar. All eyes were on him. A grasshopper walks into a bar. Bartender says, hey, we've got a drink named after you. The grasshopper says, you have a drink named Steve? A <laughs> uh, uh, bear walks into a bar. He sits down. Um, there's a woman uh, sitting next to him, beautiful, very drunk. She gets really annoying. So finally, he just turns to her and, and, and eats her. <laughs> tries to, the bear tries to order another drink, and the, the bartender says, sorry, we don't serve people who take drugs, and the bear says, I don't take drugs, and the bartender says, what about that barbituate? Oh. <laughs> I'll skip a few of the other. I, I, like, I, like, I like this one. Uh, there are two drugs in a bar, there's a dog in the corner licking his testicles, and one drug says the other, I, I sure do wish I could do that. And the second drug turns up and says, don't you think you ought to ask him first? <laughs> a $5 bill walks into a bar and said, the bartender says, I don't think there's anything for you here. And the, bar, and the $5 bill says, well, not. And the bartender says, well, this is a singles bar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I like this one, too. There's two more. The penguin walks into a bar. The bartender says, can I help you? The penguin says, yes. I'm, I'm looking for my father. Have you seen him? And the bartender says, I don't know. What does he look like? <laughs> and Nijak walks into a bar and says, uh, do I come here often? <laughs> okay, you get the idea. Finally, a, a, a poet and a drunk and a prostitute walk into a bar and the bartender says, what is this, some kind of joke? And that's the title of this call. What is this, some kind of joke? After work, the horse and mushroom went to the oasis. Everyone was there. The frog, who'd grown a man, was getting bent with the potato, grasshopper, and bear who ate the bar bitch, while the dancing duck and seal petted the dog who licks his balls eternally. The five-spot, short on luck, scribbled his number on the restroom walls. What a bunch of clowns. The man who drinks until the photo of his wife looks good. The genie going deaf who swears he thinks the guy says, said, 12-inch pianist. The hood, the penguin, the amnesiac, and flea. 
The barkeep nods and pours a pint for me. <laughs> Whoa, where did you go? I have more. <laughs> there are a lot of them. It's a sort of a, a curse to um, to remember jokes. My, but some of my ha- the happiest memories of my childhood were listening to my father's friends tell jokes, which seemed to go on for days. And then he beat me and burned me with cigarettes. But that's <laughs> lower your expectations. One problem is that you expect too much. Like certain families from their vacations or certain coaches from teams in the clutch. Don't be a fool. Lower your expectations. Regard the weatherman with skepticism. Remember money is too many, God. Think of your family as a shattered prism whose promises are all a little odd. Lower the bar for luck and health and friends for manners, honesty, and dialogue. Don't count on anyone to make amends. Lower your expectations for your dog. (laughs) Put all those false hopes up on some dark shelf, especially the ones about yourself. And this remains an awkward thing to prove, but in that hard surrender, you may find love. Two more. If I can find them. Oh, they're there. Okay. Elegy for a breast. Darling, no doubt you loved it more than I. After all, it was a part of you. Yet when the doctors told you you might die, you sighed and said, okay, and they cut through. And I am glad they did. For here you sit, smiling and alive and beautiful. Your laugh the same, that sweet, sarcastic wit still sparkling like a star. I feel its pull. And I remember how you laughed that way, then said, pointing your finger, Rothman, just this once. Then took your blouse off, kneeling on my bed, and let me kiss you, every inch an ounce. It was so... Well, I can't even start. Your eyes, your lips, my hand, so near. This is, uh, I can find it. Should be right here. There it is. 
Uh, I haven't read this poem in public before. I, you know, I, I don't like to explain poems much. I just like to tell jokes before I read them. <laughs> but uh, this poem is called Joy, and it's, um, it's about a young man. I'm not going to tell you what the poem's about. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about him. He did exist. He uh, was a student of mine. I used to be the headmaster of a high school, and I both taught uh, and ran this school, this little private school up in the mountains. And this boy was a very, very, very gifted athlete. He was one of the best young freestyle skiers in the country, a pipe and park skier, an aerialist, uh, an extreme skier. When he was 13 years old, he was a ski racer, to give you a sense of who he was. And this, this is why I became so close to this young man, actually. He was the child of one of the local owners of the ski shop. He went down to Telluride, and there were three 13-year-old boys, and they went down for a ski race. And you know the coaches were under strict instructions never to leave the boys alone in a condominium, because you never leave three 13-year-old boys alone in a condominium. That's, that's, you know, that's like sort of, I mean, I don't know, what, what would that be like? Uh, you know, it's, it's like smoking while you're pumping the gas or something. So, uh, so they're in this expensive, this is what happens when you're a headmaster or a principal. There are, I have some good jokes about it, too. But they're in this condominium, and the three of them, and one of them decides to take a shower, and the coaches have gone off to get a bite to eat. So the two of them look around, and they see a blender. What is the most incredibly disgusting thing you could imagine that a bunch of 13-year-old boys would think of to do when one boy's in the shower and they're alone in a condo that isn't their own and there are no adults around and they have a blender? They did it. They took a dump in the blender, fired it up, and threw it on the other kid in the shower. And, uh, and of course, he then didn't stand still in the shower. He came running out of the shower. And I got the call at 7 a.m. in the morning on Monday when my athletic director said, you're not going to believe this. I hope you're sitting down. committee and say, now, now you can't laugh. This is serious. There's $7,000 worth of damage, and it's on the drapes, and we're, we might get sued, and we have to deal with this. And we'd say, so, and then you did what? And, so we got to the point where there were apologies and so on and so forth, and they worked all summer to earn the money, and we didn't expel them. And the, the ringleader had been, of course, this very charismatic young athlete who went on to be this great freestyle skier. And he didn't look at me for two years. But by then, he was about this tall. So he started looking at me again. And because he wasn't expelled, and because we had this really wonderful experience, he, he became very sweet. And he would always, um, because he trusted me, because he really didn't have a dad. And he knew that um, I and the other teachers in this school were the closest things. He had to a father, and he was a wonderful, funny, charming, handsome kid. And uh, he got his act together, and he got through high school, and he didn't get expelled, and he didn't crap in any more blenders and throw on the drapes. And uh, he was going to go off to college. And then when he was a senior, he went to a meet at Copper Mountain, and he threw a move called a Switch 540, which is where you come off a jump about as high as the ceiling, going 40 miles an hour backwards. And you spin around one and a half times, 540 degrees, and you land going forward. And he went about 50 feet, and he overspun and landed sideways and was thrown to the ground and snapped his brainstem and died on impact. And uh, that was a very sad day. And one of his old friends, a young woman, babysits my kids. She's in college, you don't see you. And um, that's what this poem is about. It's also it's a poem I wanted to get away with using the word whence. So we'll see if it works. The poem's called Joy. He died two years ago at 17. My sweet-willed student, 
rising free ski star. He'd always landed switch 540s clean, but went too big this time and spun too far. In college now, she babysits my boys. The plastic band that bears his name is blue. Hard evidence she's learned what time destroys. I ask. Just friends, she says. I sense it's true. A pause. But he did. Here. Out on the stairs, she looks me in the eye. Words overflow. They did it on my couch. A cute friend of theirs. A wistful smile. I thought you'd want to know. Oh, funny, lanky, long-haired, boisterous boy. Whence these sudden tears? This stubborn joy. Thank you. charge of glibness. Um, but I think we, we have seen that, that intensity and depth are compatible with laughter, which I think is a step in the right direction. Um, and I, I appreciate that all of you came out. I appreciate that you're all part of the Lighthouse community and that you're all interested still in the written word. And I hope that you hang out tonight and meet some other people who are here and that we see a lot more of you. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.